and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the 401st show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Thomas McGovern, professor at Hunter College and Cooney Graduate Center, who's going to talk to us about Norse Greenland settlements, reflections on climate change, trade, and the contrasting fates of human settlements in the North Atlantic Islands. Our history buff for today's show is Brett Menard. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Sapsavital, and our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of our show, referred to as Fadruk Danarin, and today we'll be talking about Norse Greenland settlements, reflection on climate change, trade, and the contrasting fates of human settlements in the North Atlantic Islands with Dr. Thomas McGovern, he goes by Tom, a professor at Hunter College and the CUNY Graduate Center. Welcome to the show, Dr. Thomas. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join you. And you don't mind um, if we call I should, you Tom. I should start by saying that uh, oh. I'm actually representing a, a whole committee of other scholars. We are a, very much a team. Uh, modern archaeology is very much a team sport. So there's there's dozens of us who have been collaborating on working with North Greenland over the years, and we are, we're still doing it. Oh. Uh, and some of them, unlike myself, are young and spry and going to Greenland this summer. So uh, it's, we're, we're still still learning things. Well, fantastic. That is great to to inform our listeners, which is usually, um, uh, can you continue to give us kind of the background of the settlement of Greenland? And sure. what is your team, like uh, you said, it's a team sport. Uh, how many are on the team? How long has this been going on? And other great details like that. Well, uh, research into North Greenland has been going on for really a long time. Uh, the, the first actual archaeology in Greenland uh, was in the 1890s. Um, and there was a big spur to work in the 1920s and 30s. But I think it's fair to say that, that most of the uh, intensive research has been going on since the 1970s, uh, and we've been continuing to do that. So North Greenland is always an interesting and actually, I think, fascinating case. Uh, and many people have seen it as being one of these great mysteries of the North. You know, you have these Scandinavian people who colonized from Iceland to Greenland around 985, and they disappear somewhere around 1450 or so. Uh, so this is, seems to be one of your genuine collapses. You know, the term collapse now is a little controversial uh, in archaeology to sustainability, uh, but this is one of the ones which it really seems to apply to. As far as we can tell, this is the worst possible outcome. Whole society disappears. Uh, everybody's gone, and the, there is no survivors. So trying to understand what happened, why it happened, uh, has been entertainment for people for quite a long time. So we've <laughs> We've, we've collaborated with lots of different folks, including Jared Diamond, who has um, oh, yeah. asked us a lot of really good questions uh, back in the day. And uh, Norse Greenland featured in his book, Collapse. And in that, he asked if this wasn't a society that chose to fail, that made all the wrong choices. Um, and since then, uh, thanks to your tax dollars, we have uh, learned a lot more about Norse Greenland. And this has caused us to really rethink um, our story in some important ways. Uh, the initial story, the one we told Jared Diamond, um, was that this is a case of people coming from a north temperate zone into the low Arctic and really failing to, uh, to adjust to it. They came in in a relatively warm climate period, and when the climate cooled, uh, they just couldn't, they couldn't hack it. And it was a sad story, but it could be sort of summarized as, you know, silly Vikings go too far north, and they all die. <laughs> uh, so, you know, sad story, but nothing to do with us, really. Um, 
The current story is a bit more complicated, and I think you'll see a little more frightening. Um, more complicated is, is now we can see, because we have lots more radiocarbon dates, we can date the expansion and contraction of settlement. We have literally tons of animal bones, so we can figure out what they ate. We also have a whole lot of really innovative work done by my Danish colleagues uh, on looking at the, the DNA and the stable isotopes in the bones of the dead Norsemen. Uh, and from that, we can get an idea of not only you know, who they were and where they came from, uh, but also what they ate. And one of the things that's really coming up from all this work is that we now know that there's a big climate challenge in the North Atlantic, and especially in the North area in uh, Greenland, uh, coming after the major eruption of volcano half a world away in this modern Indonesia in 1257 AD. And by 1300, this meant that you had sea ice all around Greenland coming down in the summer, which it had not done before which it still does, and a major drop in temperature, real crisis. So if the Norse had been as maladapted and silly and inflexible as we thought they were, if they'd chosen to fail, they probably would become extinct somewhere around 1350 or so. That is when one of their settlements goes out, the western settlement for the north around modern Nuuk district. Um, this does seem to have uh, gone out, but the settlement as a whole survived for at least another 100 years. Okay. And now we can um, get a sense of how of how they did it, and what they're doing. Well, I'm, they're I'm interested because I think everybody assumes that if there were settlements on Greenland at all, they were along the south and maybe to the east, since that's where your settlers were coming from. Can you give us a sense of where people were settling and and what those sure. terrains were like? Because again, I think we assume that, that they were I mean, settling the on flat areas, here. and and that isn't necessarily the case. Yeah, the confusing thing here is that both of the settlements, the eastern and western, are on the west side of Greenland. Um, that That's confused people for a long time. Uh, but the eastern settlement is just around the south tip of the south coast. Uh, the western settlement is about 800 kilometers for the north. Um, what they have in common is these are places where in the deep inner fjords, and Greenland's very vertical. This is a very mountainous country with deep, steep-sided fjords. Um, the inner-fjord areas have a slightly different climate. Um, they're warmer in the summertime. You get a continental effect. So this means that you have some pockets of green grass there. Uh, and, of course, most of the coast of Greenland is very barren, very bare, very arctic, and uh, you know, plenty of seals, but not much scope for farming. But these two areas, the eastern settlement, much bigger, the western settlement for the north, much smaller, have um, grass for pasture, and this was a place where we could set up farms, and they did. So you had then these two areas where people were settling and bring in cows and sheep and goats and cows and pigs um, and bring in a um, sort of Icelandic lifestyle. Um, they also very early started hunting seals because one of the things that happened and when they crossed over from Iceland was they came into a, a new environment, a marine environment that had millions of migratory seals, uh, harp seals. Uh, these are the cute little guys. The Greenpeace seals has such really cute little babies. Um, they're also the most common seal on the planet. So there's something like 17 million of them out there now, and there are probably even more when the Norse were there. So this is a, an almost inexhaustible resource which would come migrating past the outer fjords uh, in the springtime. And as far as we can tell, the Norse organized sealing parties to go out there and go after those seals in big time. And this is one of the things that they pumped up uh, when the climate changed. 
So when the climate got bad after 1300, uh, they played the ceiling card as hard as they could. And it worked. They survived for another 100 years or so. But there's another thing that's going on here as well. Um, and this has to do with why they came to start with. Uh, I mean, years ago, we were wondering why people would come from Iceland to Greenland when the pasture was so much better in Greenland, so if, in Iceland, rather. So if you're looking for pasture, Greenland isn't really very green. Uh, but if you're looking for walrus, that's where they are. We now know that the Scandinavian settlers in Iceland encountered local walrus populations in Iceland. Uh, that's a long, cool story about DNA uh, and walrus bones. And it looks as though in the first 100 years or so, they probably hunted them out. And then it looks as though they meant Greenland to go for more. And that's, of course, where lots more walrus exist. So we published a paper a few years ago where the title was, Was It For Walrus?, which kind of gives it all away. So one of the things that's going on here is in the Viking Age, and even more later on the High Medieval Period, Greenland is a major source of walrus ivory uh, coming into Europe. And it looks as though that was a major reason why the Greenlanders went there and why the colony survived for as long as it did. But you also have this problem, is that the, the hunt for the walrus gets progressively more difficult. Uh, initially, when the Norse got to southern Greenland and they set up their two settlement areas in the areas with pasture, there were probably walrus right out there in the outer fjords, which you could get not too far from your farm, which had been very much the situation in Iceland. But then, as time goes past and the hunting continues, they find themselves having to go further and further north. So we know that by the 1200s or so, they're going 900 kilometers north, uh, many weeks rowing, uh, to get up to the Disco Bay region, which still has large walrus populations today, and they seem to have had to hunt them there. So you have this this really long-distance hunt with some serious commuting costs. Uh, not only is it time in the summertime taking people in boats away from uh, the home uh, areas, but also, of course, it's dangerous. Uh, coast of Greenland is, is not a safe place, and the walrus sometimes hunt back. So we can imagine a certain amount of um, casualties from this. And then after 1200, you get the migration coming across uh, people from Alaska, the people of the Thule culture, the ancestors of the modern Inuit people of the Eastern Arctic. Uh, and when they come into the Eastern Arctic area, uh, they encounter both the Norse uh, and Dorset Paleo-Eskimo folks who are unlike the Thule. Um, and at the end of the day, the Thule replaced both of them. And we don't know really that much about what happened in terms of details of the contact. Uh, there are some accounts of conflict on the north side reporting, you know, they're fighting with these squealing people, same kinds of folks that think they think they found in North America. And it looks as though the hunting going north to Disco Bay is increasingly running in to the Thule folks. Uh, and again, we don't know what's going on here, but something did. So eventually things are coming together for the Norse after 1300, which are pretty unfavorable. You're having cold climate. You're having sea ice coming in, which also makes contact with Europe much more difficult. Um, and you're getting immigrating folks coming in who are very Arctic adapted uh, and know how to deal with climate change, the Thule folks. So these are all coming together. And one of the things we're seeing is the Norse are actually trying to respond effectively. They're not just, um, you know, during the headlights. They're really working hard. They're resilient. They are changing their diet. They're moving further and further the marine food web. Um, and in the end, it isn't enough. So one of the things which we're learning here isn't just it got cold and they died, you know, silly Norsemen kind of things, is that you can be adaptive. You can be resilient. You're resourceful. 
and you can still become extinct anyway. So that, I think, is a scarier story than the one we told Jared Diamond, and I think this is one of the things which we're, we're coming to recognize as part of our, our story for North Greenland. Okay. All right. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Thomas McGovern, professor at Hunter College and Cooney Graduate Center. And we're talking about North Greenland settlements, reflections on climate change, trade, and the contrasting fates of human settlements in North Atlantic Islands. Our history buff for today's show is Brett Menard. Brett, as the medieval historian in the group, you get the first question. Thanks. During the first segment, you talked about how um, one of the things that drew the Norse to Greenland is walrus ivory. So how would a walrus hunt go? Are they just uh, cutting off the ivory and discarding the rest? Are they processing it on site and then bringing it back to the settlements? How did that all work? Good question. We don't know the exact details. We have some pretty good ideas of of how the the walrus hunt would probably progress. Uh, For one thing, you don't hunt walrus in the water. They're too dangerous there. Uh, You wait until they haul out and and make a big pile themselves and go to sleep for a few days. Um, And these hauling out places are fairly well established. They keep going back to the same places over and over, so you can target them. Uh, we know from the Dutch hunting in Spitsbergen that uh, many, many years later that they would attack the walrus from the sea side and probably try to drive them inland uh, and kill as many as they could. So um, it's a mass hunt. Uh, this is one reason why probably the Norse extinct to the walrus in Iceland, who we now know were a, a genetically different uh, group. And also the Norse there were able to hunt walrus from pretty much their back door. They could step out of their farms and go to the hauling out places from there. In Greenland, as you're saying, as the walrus become rarer around the settlement areas, you have to go further and further north. And now we're talking about a pretty much um, all-summer trip going north, killing as many walrus as you can, bring the tusks back home. And one of the things we're seeing with this is this is a point we can see they're not taking much of the postcranial bones back. It looks like not much meat's moving. What they're just doing is they're chopping off the front of the walrus's face with the dense roots uh, attached and bringing that back. And the reason they're doing that is um, if you try to pull out the tusks from a freshly dead walrus, they tend to break right at the gum line, and you lose a lot of the very best of the ivory. So they're doing what modern Inuit uh, hunters would do too, which is to chomp off the front and bring it back and let it rot up a little bit and then chisel out the teeth later, uh, presumably in the wintertime. Because what we find 
on the home farms, you know, 800 or more kilometers south from the kill sites, are those pieces of the bone, the maxillary bone right around the tusk roots, uh, neatly broken out. Uh, we don't find very much ivory at all because that all goes back to Europe. Hey, John. Um, well, let's talk about that since it's going back to Europe. I mean, you're focusing on uh, Greenland and uh, their tr- way of trying to survive both um, through finance and through just day by day. Um, so how much of a market was this ivory heading back to Europe? I mean, was that very well documented or is that just once it hits the coastal coast that that information's lost? Well, we have uh, actually two different kinds of records. One of them we've known about for a long time. There is one single uh, written documentary source talking about uh, a uh, 13th century shipment of walrus ivory uh, from Greenland to Bergen. And it arrives there, and there's over 400 tusks. And that's a lot of ivory. And it looks as though this is a multi-year accumulation. And we know about this because there's correspondence going back and forth between the agent, the papal agent in Bergen and, and the Pope's representatives Rome about how to sell the stuff and how to get the, the maximum out of it. Uh, and the agent wants to sort of bring the, the material, the ivory, onto the market gradually rather than just dumping it all at once. Uh, and they say, yeah, sure, go ahead, get the best, best price you can. If you do the sums, that um, load of ivory from Greenland was worth more than the papal ties from all of Iceland. So it was worth a lot at that point. Uh, they was using it for all kinds of things, um, lots of, of ecclesiastical ornaments, the church objects, um, the Lewis Chessman, these kinds of things were absorbing lots of, of walrus ivory. The other thing we know now, and this is just the last few years, thanks to work from some of our uh, friends in Scandinavia and the UK, teams led by James Barrett from uh, Cambridge, um, We've been able to demonstrate, actually, from looking at the DNA in the walrus remains in Europe, that after about 1200, um, virtually all the ivory, all the pieces of walrus are coming from Greenland. So this is from using the, the modern DNA research, which is so cool and so new, and also the old documentary stuff, which you've known about for years, are really coming to get grips with the idea that for a period, the Greenlanders had established what they might think of as market dominance in Europe. Um, but the question, of course, is at what cost to them? Uh, increasingly, you're talking about this much more, more and more distant hunt. Um, and part of our lesson may be about the downside of a early photo world system connection uh, of a large market to small community. So uh, that's the easy part of our story, too. Hi, um, Tom, I'm interested. So we've talked a little bit about you know, the ivory coming, what are the um, Greenlanders getting for their ivory? Because I, I assume that that Greenland doesn't have much in the way of wood, um, or at least that that's exhausted fairly quickly. Um, and so what kinds of bulk goods and raw materials and things are they having to import back to Greenland sure. in order to keep things going? A key thing they're having to import is iron. 
the Icelanders are able to do some iron smelting, and they do. Uh, the Greenlanders, because of different geology, can't do that. So they are totally dependent on iron coming in from the outside. Um, they may have also gotten some iron periodically from the two large iron meteorites up in the Thule district, but that's not well proven. So well, we, one thing we, do can see, we can see, if you look at archaeological artifact collections from Iceland, Greenland, or contemporary, um, the big thing that jumps out is the Greenlanders have almost no iron. And when they do, it's really, really used up. So that's a big thing. They're an Iron Age society. They can't survive without it, and they need to have that connection. The other thing, of course, that they're importing is their Europeanness. Um, by 1127, they decide that they need a bishop, and they get one. Um, and they set up a really amazing series of large stone churches that are bigger than anything See in Iceland, uh, the Icelanders in the high Middle Ages probably numbered about eighty thousand people. The Greenlanders maybe three or four thousand. So you can get a sense of of the dis- differences there. And those churches we know were furnished with stained glass with imported church bells. Um, so they were important connections. So that that connection, the ideological, the political, the ecclesiastical connection back to Green, from Greenland back to the home countries, seems to have been really important to them. And this also is part of our story as well. Okay, Brett. So we know that um, the Greenland settlements were the basis for um, attempts to uh, settle other parts of North America. After the uh, settlements fail, are there any continued trips to uh, the coast of Canada for supplies or some of these things that they can't produce? That's a really good and, and sort of um, a hard question to answer, is that there's been lots of research and interest in looking for potential north sites along Baffin Island. Um, none of them have really proven ironclad. Um, the early site around 1000 and Lonson Meadows in northern Newfoundland seems to have been a one-off, and it wasn't successful very, very quickly. However, there are a few hints that there was continued contact. Uh, there's a story in Icelandic annals of a ship from Greenland that was blown off course on its way back from Markland, which is supposed to be Labrador, uh, with a cargo of wood. And the Icelanders didn't think that was too remarkable, but they thought what was more remarkable was how small and crummy the Greenlandic ship was and the fact that instead of having proper iron nails hold together, it was lashed together with baleen, uh, which I think tells you a lot about seafaring and also iron. So we don't really know uh, what the situation was, but it doesn't look as though there is a whole lot of connection going on across uh, to uh, Arctic Canada. And again, after the Thule people arrived, this may have been an increasingly hostile environment. So um, we don't really know. Uh, it is a, an area for, as they say, ongoing research. Okay. Jay? Um, so I'm curious then, because your article talks about climate change and trade and all of that. Um, so it sounds to me like you have kind of a perfect storm situation here. Um, where you have climate change taking place that affects Greenland uh, more so than it does Iceland, where you have uh, trade changes. Um, you know, I suspect, you know, is there a point at which walrus, the walrus market begins to collapse or its center moves to some other producer? 
Um, talk to us about kind of how things start to, how the wheels start to fall off. Sure. Uh, and I think the perfect storm is, is, is a good analogy. There's lots of bad things happening at once. Um, I think one thing to think about also is there's this juncture point around 1200 or so when, um, thanks actually to the, um, the Mongol Empire, uh, a proto-world system is coming together there. And so there's a, there's a market now for bulk goods, uh, especially dried fish and, uh, and woolens. And the Icelanders jump into that. Uh, we know from the archaeology we've been doing in Iceland that they really intensify fishing. They start producing a very standardized, commercialized product for a, a, a European market. And they also um, change the way they produce woolen cloth, the way women are, are spinning and weaving. And they are producing a standardized cloth, uh, a legally defined cloth, which, of course, also can be made a commodity. And some really interesting work by Michelle Hillier-Smith, our colleague from uh, Smith, uh, uh, is um, uh, from Dartmouth, is doing uh, on woolen cloth, and she studied all these little scraps of cloth preserved and got some really interesting stuff out of it. She sees in Iceland around 1200, 1250, this shift from very varied artisanal, non-standardized weaving to a very standardized production of this commercial product. And we know from our documentary sources that that's what the Icelanders were trading to Europe along with the fish. She did the same work in Greenland and discovered there was no such standardization. Um, they're still making the, the old style, you know, very variable Viking Age kind of clothing. If you look at the animal bones in Iceland, there's a huge surge in sheep in versus goats. In Greenland, uh, goats outnumber sheep right to the end. So the Greenlanders are not picking up on this this new trade in fish and wool and woolen cloth. They are still going along with the old uh, materials from the walrus. And of course, this gets, leaves them vulnerable to all kinds of bad things happening. Certainly, shifts in taste. Um, this is a period when the Moj enamel starts replacing walrus ivory for lots of things like reliquaries and church ornaments. So they're they're losing a market there. This is also a period when the center of gravity changes in uh, in control of the North Atlantic. Uh, Norway declines dramatically after the Black Death hits them, and by the 1390s, uh, it's shifted its power shifted to Denmark, and the Danish state uh, now owns Norway and distantly Greenland. But they're really not interested. They are interested in, in the Baltic, and they're really interested also in increasing their trade with the Muscovites and Novgorod and Russia. And, of course, these are people who have access to another source of walrus in the Barents Sea. And this is the point where we know that the Barents Sea walrus fishery really cranks up. And you can see again from the isotopes uh, that this is a point where the Greenlandic ivory starts trailing off and the Barents Sea ivory comes in. So they're they're just in terrible shape from lots of different directions at the same time. And, again, I think we, the thing that we're realizing is the extent to which they were actually showing a good deal of resilience in terms of subsistence and shifting over to you know, the marine food web, going after the seals more intensively. But because they were still connected up to the old walrus hunt, uh, they're really paying a heavy price for that. So I think this is a case where you can see both a lot of resilience, but also the limits of adaptive flexibility. That connection to Europe through the walrus, I think, turned out to be pretty expensive for them. Okay. Uh, Tom, it's customary for us to give our guests the last word on the show. Why do you think knowing about the history of Greenland's settlement is relevant in today's world? I think that we're all facing climate change uh, on a large scale. 
we're also facing a complicated world with lots of interactions between different parts of the world. Globalization, as we've just seen with, with COVID, has got many faces, some positive, some not so much. And I think that while we are far more powerful than the Greenlanders, uh, we also sh- share some of the same vulnerabilities in terms of, of how our societies fit together and about how different groups are, are interacting with each other. So I think there's a whole bunch of lessons here in in the past, generally, for the present and the future. And I think North Greenland and North Atlantic are particularly interesting sets of cases for people thinking about the forces that lead people to do things they do and to make sometimes fatal mistakes. All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 401st show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Thomas McGovern, professor at Hunter College and the Cooney Graduate Center, who talked to us about Norse Greenland settlements, reflections on climate change, trade, and the contrasting fates of human settlements in the North Atlantic Islands. The history buff for today's show was Brett Menard. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. Views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.